I hear the word of the Lord from the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, uh, reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. So I invite uh, your reverent attention to God's word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What is the point of the temptation narrative? <clears throat> what does it prove about Jesus? I believe the account of the temptation as given in the synoptics, is given to declare Jesus as the last Adam who is able to overcome the devil and to again recover what was lost in Eden. I believe the point of the narrative is to announce Jesus as the greater Moses, leading the last great exodus of the people of God out of this world and into paradise. And I believe the point is to announce Him as the long-awaited Messiah who, though severely tested, would faithfully establish the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And to show this this morning, I want to bring three things to your attention out of Luke chapter 4, and they are these. First, the purpose of the temptation. Second, points of the temptation. And then third, power over the temptation. I think it's vital that we understand what a significant and cosmic battle was taking place here in this temptation narrative. And it was at the very outset of our Lord's ministry, of His public ministry. It's important that we understand that the forces of evil were fully leveled against Him, to detour Him, to distract Him, to tempt Him, 
And it's important for us to understand this as we apply it to us as the people of God today. And so with those things in mind, we'll look first at the purpose of the temptation. The genealogy of Jesus that just precedes this account is over in chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. It says, when Jesus began His ministry, that He was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. And so, working through the genealogy there of Joseph, you come down to verse 38, and each of these was the son of this person, was the son of that person. But it says of Adam that he was the son of God. Adam was the son of God, the firstborn of the old creation by immediate creation of God. And then it says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus. And this is important to us to understand that as Adam is presented just prior to the temptation account as the Son of God of the first creation, that Jesus is now brought forth to our attention as the Son of God, the firstborn of the new creation. And the offspring of God in order for us to understand what was about to take place in the temptation. This comparison is crucial because what we begin to understand is that Genesis 3.15, as God pronounced the, the curse and as God declared to the evil one that you'll bruise his heel, but he'll bruise your head, that the seed of the woman, being Christ, would be at enmity with the seed of the world or the devil. And now what we see in this genealogy, the connection here from the first Adam to the second Adam, first son of God by creation to second, is that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, is being put forth to begin to crush the devil's head. At the beginning of his ministry, he is binding the strong man and he's beginning to plunder his house, meaning that he is binding the power of Satan and he's beginning to recover the souls captured by him through deceiving the first Adam. Where the first son of God failed, that is Adam, the second succeeds, and he begins now in the power of God to recover that which was lost in the fall. And the question had lingered for centuries and centuries and centuries, who is strong enough to overcome the power of the evil one? Who is strong enough to overcome the results of the fall? Who is the strong man stronger than the devil himself to take away the prized possession of the devil, which is the captured souls of the sons of men. But not only does the narrative begin to unfold the declaring of Jesus as the second Adam, but it also declares him, I believe, as the greater Moses, the new and greater Moses, leading the end-time people out of this world in one last final exodus into the heavenly city and the new creation. You've heard Phil refer to this often. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe it's clear to you or maybe not. But, but that's what I'm speaking about, that Christ is the greater Moses. What Moses prefigured, Christ fulfills. What Moses, in leading the people of God out of Egypt, did in a figure was pointing ultimately to Christ who was to come and who for us has now come and is leading the people of God out in the last great exodus out of the world of sin, out of the Egypt of this world and into the promised land. You remember the events of the old exodus? If you just think about them in your mind, in Christ we see these events re revisited and we see in Him the greater fulfillments of those major events. Well, let's think of some of them. 
All right? First of all, called out of Egypt. As Israel was called out of Egypt, so was Christ. It says in Matthew 2.15, Out of Egypt have I called my son, referring to Christ. And also he was baptized through water, just as Israel was of old. And he was led like they were by the Spirit into the wilderness for them 40 years. But it's no uh, mistake that it's 40 days in order to show the connection to Israel of old that he was tempted, led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted. In fact, if we look at the first two verses of chapter 4, again it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days while being tempted by the devil. You see that connection? Also, God spoke directly to Jesus out of heaven, as he did with Moses. Jesus was tempted by the devil to distrust God as Israel was. And like ancient Israel, he hungered and he thirsted in the wilderness. Now, these connections are unmistakable, and many more comparisons could be made. But I want you to think of the baptism of Jesus and then the temptation of Jesus as his messianic pronouncement, as putting him forth as the Messiah long awaited who has been sent from God, the unveiling of the salvation of God, chapter 3 and verse 6 of Luke, where it says, quoting the Old Testament, actually we could look at verse 4 through 6, it says, as it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Listen to what it says of our Lord who was to come. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough roads smooth. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. As it was announced, now He is being put forth. See the salvation of our God. God is bringing His champion forward in the battle for the souls of men. And that is the purpose of the temptation. And that is the context that is before us as we look at the verses themselves. The second, notice the points of the temptation. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin. And what we have recorded in verse, chapter 4 verses 3 to 12 are the devil's choice fiery arrows launched at Jesus. His most deceptive weapons unleashed with fury upon our Savior. Satan held nothing back. And every temptation was calculated to deceive the Savior and cause Him, if He could, to forfeit the plan of redemption. His mission, he wanted to, Satan wanted to detour Him from, just as He did with Adam in the garden and just as He tried to do with the people of Israel in the wilderness. Satan tempted Jesus. And there's three things that the devil tried to get Jesus to do, and here they are. He tried to get Him to doubt God's Word, first of all. Second, he tried to get him to provoke God to action. And then third, he tried to get him to compromise God's will. First, Jesus, uh, the devil tried to get Jesus to doubt God's Word. There in chapter 4, uh, beginning in the last part of verse 2, we begin to look at these temptations in particular. It says, For forty days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. Now, this is not the hunger of 12 or 24 or 36 hours without food, and all of us have done that. 
This is not your, your, your stomach and your uh, telling you, you know, hey, I'm, I'm used to having food and I'm hungry, and, and it's not the body beginning to feel a little diminished and losing energy. This is 40 days of nothing having been eaten whatsoever in the wilderness and while being tempted by the devil. And while all of that went on is not recorded for us, these specific temptations at the end, at the culmination are, he was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness while being tempted by the devil. So he was diminished. It says he hungered. It means there were great pains, intense pains. His physical and mental strength were at that time diminished. The devil often doesn't come to us, in fact, I think rarely, I might say, when we are strong, when we have been drinking freely from the river of the water of life. He comes to us at our weak moments. And while the Son of God not being weak in the sense of having any sin or temptation from within himself, he was physically outwardly diminished. And so Satan said to him in that condition in verse 3, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Don't let the phrase, if you're the Son of God, bring any confusion. The devil was not confused about who Christ was. That's why he tempted him here. That's why he assaulted him with all of the force that he could muster. And he was not even mocking the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, as many did on the cross, and said, just come down from the cross. What Satan was saying essentially is, because you are the Son of God, since you're the Son of God, you're no mere man. You share in the divine essence. So why should you hunger and thirst in this way? Why should you be humbled in such a way because of who you are? Just command these stones to become bread. You can do that. You're the God-man. And the God-man should not be humiliated and tempted in this way. Jesus gave His answer in verse 4, and he answered him, and he said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And in the Matthean account, it gives the rest of the verse from Deuteronomy. It says, But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, to understand better what it was that the devil was tempting Jesus to do, let's go back to the Scripture that Jesus quoted in, Exodus, in, excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let's see if we can gain some depth of our understanding about what Satan was trying to do. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, said, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandment or not. And He humbled you, and He let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Israel was humbled, and Israel was hungered. And why? To test what was in their heart, to see if they would keep the commandment of God or not. And He caused them to hunger, says Deuteronomy. He caused them to be humbled. But what was the point of that? It turns right around and it says there in Deuteronomy 8, uh, 3, that He would 
Yeah, ate three, let you be hungry, but then he fed you with manna. That's what I was looking for. He let them be hungry, and he let them feel the intense pains of that hunger, and yet he gave them miraculously bread which they never expected. In a wonderful way, in which God often does for his people of God, he provided bread where there should have been no bread in the wilderness. And he provided not only manna for them, but quail for them. He gave them food in a miraculous way. He wanted them to make them understand that God could provide even when it seems that there's no possible way. When the physical eye says this will not happen, God loves and delights to step in and says, now watch what I do for my children. To lift their eyes above the creation to the Creator was what God was trying to get them to understand. To take their trust out of the physical and what they could see with their eyes and look to the God of creation. It's not bread that sustains the life of man, as Jesus said. It's not bread alone, but it's the one who created the bread. I like what John Gill in his commentary on the verses we're looking at in Luke said. He said bread alone, without the divine blessing of God added to it, would not sustain man's life. Have you thought of it like that? Bread without the divine power of God who created that bread for our good, bread alone doesn't sustain life. What sustains life? It's to know and obey and love our God who created us. It's not by bread alone. And so coming back to Luke chapter 4, that's the context. And so Jesus quotes those verses And he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live how? By every word, every command, every purpose that comes out of the mouth of God. And so Satan, as he did in type with Israel there in the wilderness, as they greatly failed there, he does again. He repeats it in its fulfillment with Jesus so that we, not Jesus might see what's in his heart, but that we might see that he would fulfill the command of God and that we would see that he would not distrust God's promise nor be dissatisfied with God's provision. He was hungered and he thirsted in the wilderness. And so Satan said, hey, it's no problem for you being as who you are. Make those stones into bread. Why should you suffer like this? You're the son of God. But Jesus would not take matters into his own hands. He said man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. But not only did the devil try to get Jesus to doubt God's word, but he tried to get him to provoke God to action. I want you to come all the way down to verses 9 to 12 here. And I'm taking the Matthean order here. Where Matthew has it, this is the second in the order. And I'll take that and we'll come back to the other verses in a moment. And so we read, beginning in verse number 9, that he, being the devil, led him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, again, if you're the Son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it's written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, we understand and see that the devil knows what is written, but he won't obey it. He understands what is written, but he does not receive it. And he quotes the Scripture here, but he only quotes what serves his evil purpose, and he denies the context of those verses, leaving part of it out. 
And isn't that some of the greatest deception of our day? I might just slightly go aside to remind the church and encourage us today that we are not assaulted today, especially in the American church, by someone standing up and immediately blaspheming the Word of God, immediately opposing the Word of God, immediately causing you to doubt the Word of God. But we're very often deceived in subtle ways by those who would quote the Scripture, but they do it to serve their own ends, often out of context. This is one of the greatest deceptions of our day. But we've been given the Spirit of God that we might be discerning for those things. Again, Jesus' answer as the temptation came in verse number 12, Jesus answered him, said, It is written, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. So let's look again to the place where Jesus gave his answer from, and it'll help us get the full picture of what Satan was trying to get him to do. I want you to go to Exodus chapter 17, and you may say, wait a minute, I thought it says in the footnotes of my Bible that came from Deuteronomy 6. Well, Deuteronomy 6 that Jesus quoted refers to an event in a place named Massah, which means tempt or test. And that event we can read about in Exodus 17. And let's look at the first three verses and then verse 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 7 now, And he named the place Massah, test, and Meribah, quarrel, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, and here's what's in their heart. This is our insight, folks. Here's what they thought in their evil thoughts. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is quite remarkable because God had for them, if you read the prior account, brought to them in a miraculous way manna every morning, bread from heaven every morning except the Sabbath day, which was the seventh. Because God gave them on the sixth day enough bread for both the sixth and the seventh day. God being so gracious that for six days of gathering, He gave them seven days of bread as He does for us. Every morning He brought the manna miraculously to them and they gathered it up, all that they needed. Every evening He brought the quail right into the camp. Have you guys ever been quail hunting? Some of you guys are hunters. Do, the, do you ever just set up your camp and sit back in an easy chair with your gun just kind of resting like this? And the quail, they all just come walking up. I mean, you really don't even need a gun. You just kind of need a net, in that case, to scoop them up. That's what God did for them every morning, every evening, every morning, every evening. But now they journeyed to a place where there was very little water. And they begin to thirst and they begin to feel that. Would they say, oh, well, God's bringing us manna in the morning and quail in the evening. God will provide the water that we need. No, they did not. They said essentially this to God. God, if you don't do something, then you're really not worthy of our trust. God, 
you've done some great things. We understand that. But now we need something else, and it's up to you right now. You're going to show us. You're going to prove. You're going to show. <laughs> Are you going to do something or not? I mean, how unthankful, how ungrateful can a hard heart be? How hardened is the sinful heart of man that hardens itself against a loving and a generous God? To say to him, either act now or don't expect us to trust you any further. That's the context. And I want you to come back to Luke chapter 4 and you understand more of what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. Je Jesus is taken by the devil and put placed on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And the devil is suggesting to Jesus that despite all the prior proof of God's loving him and watch care over him and preserving him for this hour, and despite the Father's declaration at, at Jesus' baptism that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, despite all of that past evidence, the devil suggests that now the best way to get God to act and to assure yourself that you're at the right place at the right time, you are who you say you are, your ministry will be successful as it's at its outset, you will be ultimately uh, known among men, is to attempt to kill yourself, to throw yourself down. And the devil says, if you do that, jump off this high place, this significant and this symbolic place, it would be a fantastic and an impressive way to assure that your father will do his part in your behalf. Besides, you won't ever hit the ground because the angels, they'll come and they'll gather you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. You see, he was saying to them, as he said to Israel in the old, of old, and Israel fell, but Christ did not. The devil was saying, is your God with you or not? <laughs> Sometimes people come to us and we share the gospel with them and they give us a similar answer. Well, if God wants me to know he's God, he can just prove something right now. He'll just show it. If, if I was to believe in your God, then, you know, or do you believe in God? You, you think that God loves you? Well, you know, have him do something that I can see. Perform a miracle. Have your God act. He's not acting. I hear nothing. In that case, I don't believe. But Jesus, on the other hand, in verse 12, answers with righteousness and honoring God and trusting that all the difficulty of the temptation and the diminished condition of his body and his mind and the constant assault of Satan, even after all of that, he remembers his father. He honors his father. He believes his father. And he says, it is said or written, you shall, and the New American Standard points this out rightly, I believe, you shall not force a test on the Lord your God. Be like you saying, well, I believe in God. I have faith. I'm going to run out into the middle of the interstate and stand there, and God will preserve and protect me. Well, it's just a foolish thought of a fallen mind. God will protect us in all His ways, everything He has purposed for us, but not in our own foolishness. Jesus would never do what the Israelites did, and that's forced God to act, so to speak, to anger God by our unthankful and unbelieving words or actions. And then even as children of God, 
the called out assembly of Israel in the Old Testament and us as the church today, to ever consider that or presume that once God had promised our good and promised to preserve us, that we are free to demand it when and where we will and in the way that we desire. That's not true faith. That's not praying in faith. That's tempting God to act and saying, is God with us or not? That comes from an evil heart of unbelief. Jesus would never do that. Not only did Satan try to get Jesus to doubt God's Word and to put God to the test, but he also tried to get him to compromise God's will. If you look in Luke 4, back in verse 5 through 8 now, this temptation, it says that he led him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, whether this is done in visionary form, that Jesus was able to see all the kingdoms of the world and their power and their glory, or whether the devil took him up and he saw the kingdoms of the immediate Roman Empire and those represented all the kingdoms of the world, I'm unsure. But either way, it represented the power and the glory that was what it would be and what it would mean for someone to rule over them. And it continues in verse 6, The devil said to him, I'll give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus looked forward to becoming the world's king, didn't he? Jesus had it as an ever-present goal of his. It was ever before his eyes. And, and it was to him a great motivating prize that he sought to win, to be the king of the world. But in what way would he receive that kingdom from the hand of his father? By what means would he gain the authority over the kingdoms of the world and all their power? Would, he be, would it be by the narrow way of suffering and death? whereby Jesus would fulfill all righteousness and save His people from their sins? Or would it be the broad way, the devil's way, of bypassing the cross and receiving the glory of the kingdoms of this world immediately? You remember in John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, that Christian and his companion at this time, hopeful, had been drinking freely from the water of the river of life. And they had been living the abundant life. God's presence was with them, and they were refreshed by that. Power of the Spirit, the obedient life. But it says an interesting phrase. It says that the way, meaning the narrow way to the, to the celestial city, and the river parted for a time. Remember that when we studied that? Meaning that there was a, a time when the presence of God was not so keenly known. Or that they, in their own hearts, somehow departed from relying wholly upon the Spirit of God. It was a time God purposed for their testing. And then the way became hard. It said that the path for Christian and hopeful became hard on their feet. It was difficult. They began to struggle. And they came upon a place called Bypath Meadows. Bypath Meadow. And they looked over to consider what it was, and it looked at first glance like it paralleled the way, the narrow way. And it looked like it would lead them to the same destination. 
the celestial city. And it looked like a pleasant path. And so with some reluctance, they went and they began to examine and explore that bypath. And they got off the way. And at first it did seem very smooth. They were relieved. Oh, this is not so hard on us, our feet. We have some relief. And they began to walk this. And they thought, this is just an alternative path to get us to the same place. But then it began to be dark. And storms arose. And they met with someone who fell into a pit and, and was ultimately destroyed. And they, and they began to recoil and they understood, wait a minute. This is not a better path at all. This is the way of evil. We've sinned. We must go back to the way. But in attempting to go back to the way, there were many hurdles and distresses. They had very little power. And they ended up at a place called Doubting Castle. And the giant despair abused them and hurt them and tempted them and weakened them day after day after day. And he suggested to them, why don't you just do me and yourselves a favor and end your life? And at that time, it crossed their mind, Christian, that it would be better to end their lives and to continually suffer in the misery that they were in. But after so long a time of despair and hopelessness and wondering if it might not be better just to end it all, Christian remembered something. He remembered that in his bosom was a key called promise, the promises of the Word of God. And he retrieved the key, and he said, this key, the promises of the Word of God, will allow us to unlock the cell of this dungeon in Doubting Castle and will allow us to freely escape. And so they unlocked the key to the dungeon, and they unlocked the key to the gate of the castle, and they escaped, and they found their way back to the narrow way. And they recognized in the narrative that goes on there that I won't um, talk about right now, that how they had greatly sinned in thinking that the easy path would get them to the same destination. Now, Jesus is presented with this here by the devil. Why don't you just bypass the suffering? Why don't you bypass the difficulty? Why don't you bypass? You can get the glory for yourself, and you can get it now. Who would have been completely left out had Jesus taken the glory then? Me and you. Because Jesus came not for Himself. He came not for His sin, but He came for us, His people, His beloved bride. And He knew, Jesus knew from understanding and reading the Old Testament Scriptures that He was going to inherit the kingdom of God in the right way, and that way was going faithfully all the way to the cross, as Isaiah 53 uh, explains to us, in order to inherit the glory not just Himself but with His redeemed people. And I want you to look back to Daniel now in chapter 7. I want to make Phil proud of me in offering uh, uh, something from Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> because I, like, like him, believe the connection is, is so clear that it cannot be avoided. You remember when Jesus had been crucified and He was resurrected and they stood and they... At his, as his ascending up, and, and they stood there and watched, and clouds received him out of their sight. Well, you know what happened after that? Daniel 7, 13, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And notice this, and this is what Jesus knew by reading the Old Testament Scriptures. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, a way which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The kingdom of the devil will be destroyed, was destroyed in the victory of Jesus. The kingdom the devil offered him would be one of the world and the way of the world, and it was a kingdom that was passing away. But Jesus looked forward with anticipation to the day when he would receive a kingdom that would be everlasting, that would never be destroyed, and a kingdom that would be inherited not only by him, but by us as his people because he was faithful. says in Ephesians 1, 21, and you don't have to look there, that Jesus rose victorious far above every rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. But Satan had proposed an alternative path, a path of compromise, a way for Jesus to become the king of the world without facing the cruel suffering and death of the cross. So coming back to Luke again, we look a little further at the answer of Jesus in Luke 4, Jesus, uh, the, the tempter said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, it's all yours. You'll get the dominion you see. But Jesus said, and I like again the Matthean account in, in Matthew 4.10 where Jesus said in response to the devil saying, why don't you worship me? Why don't you just yield? You know, why don't you just serve me and I'll do the rest? And Jesus said this in Matthew's account, away with you, Satan. Be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. He said, no way, Jose. <laughs> so in the recorded temptations that we have, Jesus establishes that He was a man of faith. He would not doubt God's Word. He was a man of humble character. He would not provoke God into action nor anger Him in that way. And He was a man of obedience. He would not compromise God's will. Brothers and sisters, let us not in any of these evil ways, by doubting the Word of God or provoking God into action or compromising the will of God, let us not in any of these ways give in to the temptations of the devil. Let us deflect the fiery arrows that he fires at us as Jesus did with the Word of God and by being people of faith and humble character and obedience. And remember this, our Christ, our forerunner, has fulfilled all righteousness in our behalf. He met every temptation with humble faith, faith and obedience in order to secure our redemption. Last of all, though, and very briefly this morning, we want to look at the power over the temptation. How did Jesus resist the temptation? Two main ways. One of them has become very obvious as we read the verses, and that is by the Word of God, by the power of the Word of God. Each and every enticement to evil was met and defeated by thus saith the Lord. Jesus knew the Old Testament Scripture. He believed the Old Testament Scripture. He quoted the Old Testament Scripture, and He quoted it rightly. He trusted in it. He rejoiced in it. He counted upon it. He read with faith. 
He said, like we're to, to say, God, as you give me understanding of your word, I won't only just gain knowledge in my mind, I'll put it into action. I'm going to believe it to the point of counting on it, acting on it, trusting in it, letting my life reflect it. Jesus did that. In fact, Psalm 119 and verse 11, a verse we're familiar with, speaks foremost of Christ where it says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Was this not true of our Lord? Did he not recall the word of God? Did he not quote the word of God to, com to combat the forces of evil at the outset of his ministry? But there's a second way that Jesus overcame temptation, and this one is not so immediately obvious, and that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been learning in our book, book study on Thursday nights uh, in a book by Mark Jones about different aspects of the humanity and divinity of Christ. It's been very challenging. It's been, it's been excellent. I recommend uh, the book to you. And, and I even have a, a copy. I believe the church has a copy or two if you're interested in knowing, knowing Christ. But the power of the Holy Spirit frames the entire temptation narrative. If you come back to chapter 3 verse 21 and 22, we notice that at the baptism of Jesus, which immediately precedes the temptation, we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit coming down. Now it came to pass when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized, and while He was praying, heaven opened. Prayer is definitely a factor. Heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. To prepare him for this temptation, this onslaught of the forces of evil, the Spirit came down upon him at the outset of his ministry. The Spirit came and in the form of a dove. Not only that, but as you look at chapter 4, the first couple of verses, the Holy Spirit is so evident there. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led about by the Spirit for these 40 days. Not only did the Spirit descend upon Him, but the, He was full of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit led Him. The Spirit controlled and guided Him every step of the way, even in the darkest hours of these temptations. And when the temptation was ended, if you look to Luke 4 and verse number 14, it says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit frames the entire event. The Spirit prepared Jesus. It controlled and protected Jesus. It led Jesus. The Spirit of God comforted and revitalized and rejuvenated Him and prepared Him to go out and meet the world and preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, having come and is among us. Jesus could never be tempted from within like we are because He was perfectly holy, but He was attacked severely from without. But His power over temptation and His victory over it was by trusting in the Word of God, by trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, yielding Himself to the Word of God, yielding Himself to the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things this book by Mark Jones has encouraged us about, you know. We often, we're often like a pendulum. We, we're going to tilt too far to one side. We can think of the divinity of Jesus, why He didn't need any help. He was God. We can think of the humanity of Jesus to the point to where we think that, you know, He's one or the other. But folks, 
He is both. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. And in His humanity to represent us, He was tempted and assaulted, and He had to rely on the power of the Spirit, which He did. Aren't you glad? We too find ourselves in need of power over temptations. We too can flee to the Word and to the Spirit. Remember, Ephesians 6, 17 says that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, a mighty spiritual weapon that we're given to resist the devil and to stand firm in the evil day. So I encourage you, as Jesus, our forerunner, did for us, fully, effectively, absolutely, we can do by relying on Him, upon the power of God's Word and the power of His Spirit, and brethren, keep the long view in mind. Do you remember the hymn um, a couple of weeks ago? Phil gave me a CD to listen to. And it was an old hymn I hadn't thought of in a long time called Far- Farther Along. Remember that hymn? And the hymn brings out the perplexity of the difficulty and temptations toward the people of God while around the world, the people that don't even care about God or His Word or the church or anything spiritual, they don't even seem to be touched. Remember the words of the hymn? Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. While there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. And what's the answer that comes? Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Keep that long view in mind. When you're assaulted, when the way of the river of the water of life seems to have separated for a time from the, from the path that we're on to the celestial city, when you become thirsty, when you become dry, when you become as if you were becoming the desert itself, and you often cry out to God, remember Keep the long view in mind and that ultimately, farther along, we'll understand it. God will give us grace. God will provide for us. God will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And if you are overcome by temptation, seek your forgiveness and your solace in our great champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, who over every temptation was successful and not for His sake alone, but for our sake. Jesus Christ, our only Redeemer, the one sent by God, uniquely qualified by God, the one presented at the baptism, here's my son, the one presented at the temptation, here is the second Adam, the successful Adam, here is the greater Moses, here is the greater Israel. Look to him and be saved. Trust in him and you live and never die, that in all things He might have the preeminence. And may He be honored by His church because of what He has done for us, both now and forever.